Thank you for joining me at Intelligogy, where together we will disrupt educational normalcy. It's Tracy Browder, Intelligogy the podcast. I am honored to have once again Che and Pav of the Staff Room podcast. Hey guys. Hi, Tracy. How are you? Hey, Tracy. Good. How are you going? Hey, Che. I'm good. I'm good. So, listeners, let me tell you while we're here. Um, We are in the midst of, I I really just yesterday started calling it a double crisis. Um, We're in the midst of COVID-19, a global pandemic. And along with that, we're facing the boiling pot. Um, The racial crisis is at an all-time high um, in America, but but the support and the pain is far-reaching across the globe. And, and that's exactly where we want, we want to park right now with um, Che and Pav. They have the Staff Room podcast, so definitely go check it out. But they have another piece of their heart placed with Voice Ed Radio. And they have a Friday morning show called The Drive. And we want to talk about a few things. So Che, Pav, and I are all literally on the same team in a lot of ways. Um, we're, we're part of Education Never Dies, and it's a group of amazing educators who want to continue to be the heartbeat for education. And um, Che and Pat, I'll let you kind of jump in and talk about um, Education Never Dies for a moment, because that that's really kind of the core of some, some really big connections for us. So can you tell us a little bit more about Education Never Dies? Yeah, absolutely, Tracy. Um Education Never Dies is uh, sort of a team that came together a couple of months ago, uh, just between a few educators that we met on Twitter, and we sort of, you know, started having conversations together, um, just talking about some of the the stuff that resonates with us within education. Um, anything from supporting teachers or being supported or, you know, having our thoughts being able to be, um, you know, exemplified in the, in the Twitter verse. And, and, and we thought that it might be a good idea to, you know, get, get a team together to be able to really work towards supporting teachers with everything that they, that they want to be able to discuss. And from there, that team has just solidified and we started a weekly chat Um, where we talk about some of the issues that we have on our minds and some of the things that we feel need to be discussed. Um, That's branched out from that to a a website where we we post a lot of our own uh, sort of personal work, you know, blog posts, and, uh, you know, we have connections to to our podcast and some of our other projects. Um, But really, it's it is essentially where that heart work happens. We have the teacher feature section where we like to highlight educators um, that we come across or that other teachers just want to recognize to show that, you know, they, they are doing the work, the, the work that happens in front of students every day. Um, and so it has really become this team that has evolved to become this network of teachers and, and not just teachers, but educators um, everybody that's involved in education that, that really have so much to talk about. And we, we try to push each other along with, with our thinking. Um, we bounce ideas off of each other. Uh, we support other teachers. We support each other with, uh, the work that we're doing. And, and it's really been a great way for us to be able to connect within the education field, 
all over and in so many different ways. Che, I'm sure I missed a few things. Did you want to add to that? I'm glad you gave me just a little right time to preface or jump in because, of course, with no eye contact, it's tougher to know when uh, the the nonverbal cues to jump in on the conversation. That's Um, right. Education Never Dies is, you know, it's a movement. It's a bunch of teachers coming together and and a bunch of teachers with some ideas and some stuff in place with whether it's your chat or your web page, but also with some grander ideas of people really uh, invigorated to want to do other work. So planning for a webinar, planning for a, a summer shorts uh, series, um, just a, a, a fireball of energy. And I, one of the reasons I think it is, whether it's education never dies or it's you sort of creating any sort of movement, it tends to be very organic in its inception. Yeah. And that education never dies simply started as a Voxer group of a few educators. And then the conversation got meaningful. And then the conversation got ideas thinking and then ideas got to action and then action ended up getting our chat started, our webpage started, and then we've got more plans to brewing. And sometimes when you think, well, how do I make a good team or what are the rules or what are the steps? Uh, Sometimes it's passion. Sometimes it's energy. Sometimes it's it's organic. And Education Never Dies is totally reproducible anywhere. It's about people coming together with passion, with ideas, and with intent to act. And Education Never Dies is very newish but it's going to continue to grow because as we know, everyone that's in that group is passionate and wants to do and is always pushing. And so when you're trying to make a movement, when you're trying to get things started, you can be comfortable to just rely on organic growth and people in there that want to do things and want to do work because the conversations turn to ideas, turn to action. Very well said. And it's a privilege and an honor for me to be asked to be part of the team And the timing couldn't have been more perfect. But before I go there, I'd like to add this piece of it. It it is a place of passion and, and pushing beyond what you think your limits are. But the bigger picture is amplifying the everyday educator inspiring and, and really giving them a platform and giving them a voice. And, and Pav, you talked about the teacher feature where we're giving educators across the world an opportunity to um, highlight someone they see, someone that speaks to them. So, so we're, we're, we're highlighting teachers in the trenches, you know, the, the unseen and, and often unheard. And we're not only amplifying, we're celebrating them. And, and that talk about pull on my heartstrings, um, the conversations behind the scenes that we're having to help schools and, and this visionary philanthropic thinking just, um, I don't know, just digs so deep into my heart that we need so much more of, of this work. So I can't wait to see where our, our ideas take us. Um, now, there's been a lot of behind-the-scenes conversation with uh, Education Never Dies um, around the the racial crisis, racial protest, riots, anger, frustration, violence, death. Um, there's there's been a lot of conversation in our team, and um, it's been a very safe place to open up. Um, to cry. I I can say that personally. (laughs) It's been a really delicate, emotional place, but there's so much trust 
There's so much love. There's so much support. And we've all been so comfortable sharing our thoughts, how we're processing. I've been sharing stories and and the openness and the reception and the comfort that, that you guys have created for me to share openly has been such a blessing. Um, and, and that being said, at the end of last week, Che and Pav, um, you had your drive segment on Voice Ed Radio. Now I'd like for you to talk to us a little bit about uh, the conversation you had, but before I have Che and Pav talk about it, I need to tell you, um, as a Black woman with a Black husband and two Black sons, and I smile every time I say that, um, I- I've shared with Che and Pav some very intimate stories, and education never dies. Um, you know, the things we see on the news, there's so much more of that. And and I've been saying it's our every day and I've shared with them so many stories. Um, and, and that's not what this time is for. But my purpose in saying that is um, we, we have peeled back some layers and have been so vulnerable and transparent with each other that when they um, had their time on the drive on Voice Ed Radio, um, we're normally very active on Twitter. We have a coffee crew that supports the drive and, and we're kind of like the cheering team and it's always so fun. But the conversation was so serious and, and I'm not going to go there. I'm going to let them talk about it. But I just need you to know that I was so consumed with emotion that I couldn't even really be active in the conversation on Twitter. I literally had tears streaming down my face for almost two hours so um, now, Che and Pav, I'd like for you to talk to us about what led you to have the conversation that you had on the drive and tell us about it. Well, Tracy, thank you for the, the big shout out for what the drive is. And, and it is typically, typically it's a fun place. So it's not necessarily a podcast. Well, it's not, 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 not necessarily because it's not a podcast. It's a radio show. And it just, it tends to be a place to just try to connect educators. So it's usually very casual educational talk, but obviously mixed in with the music. And then we typically use our podcast to dive a little deeper. Um, but the world guides or propels you in certain directions, whether it's good or bad. And it's the same way with our teaching. Our students really guide where we want to go. We can have an idea of where we want to go and what we want to do. But the realities of the world um, need to make us flexible. And the world literally was awakened or reawakened, I guess, and, and for some people not awakened at all to what was going on in this world. And and people were angry and people were upset and um, people wanted to voice, share their concerns and people wanted to listen. Like it was just peaks and valleys of emotions for everyone and, and rightfully so. And Pav and I realized it, one, as teachers, we always want to engage with conversation on anything that's pertinent and, and act upon anything that's pertinent for our students and for ourselves. And the radio show becomes the same thing, um, that this is what was going on in the world. So although the drive tends to be a very casual, fun place to connect, the times dictated that it wasn't the time to be necessarily fun. It was actually important to dive in and talk about the issues. And so we sort of changed the tone of the drive to really be reflective and part of the conversation and, and create a safe space because we knew we know lots of people tune in live to the drive. And we still tried to make it a little bit of an escape, uh, an escape with the music, but also wanted to make sure that 
if we had a platform and we had a bunch of educators gathering together that great educators uh, take part in, in what's current and what's going on right now. And so our conversation really dove right into it, the systemic racism, the need for anti-racist education. And like I said, I use the word reawakening um, because ultimately if I think about our school and we think about what's going on in our, in, in our community, people are aware of this and, and they and they possibly and probably, and they certainly are doing good work. But when something like this happens, you realize the good work you're doing maybe just needed a little bit more push, need a little bit more focus, need a little bit more intention. And the drive was a platform and a place for us to connect with educators and share and talk and reflect. And the amount of feedback and conversations that came from that was really, really, it was touching and it was impactful. And it made, you know, Pav and I feel like we had done something of of value to what needed to be doing right now, right? We all want to do the work. And we just felt like that moment was a good moment for everyone that was there. It sort of it got the focus going, or the focus on the issues we wanted to talk about, got us really thinking about our anti-racist education, our anti-racist pedagogy. And, and we feel that anyone that was there with the drive left with their emotions, you know, charged up, ready to make a difference. And we felt the content and the conversation really guided us on what we can do as educators and teachers. So that's a very long-winded answer, but the drive was just the, the state of the world dictated what you should do. And as teachers, we do that all the time. And when we talk about the drive or our podcast platforms, it should be reflective of that as well. And and that was really the drive. Pav, you want to add a little bit more insight onto, onto that? Uh, yeah, thanks, Che. Um, you know, Tracy, you mentioned that, uh, you know, our Education Never Dies team has become a really safe place for us to be talk, be able to talk about some of the things that are um, on our minds and the things that we need to get off of our chest to be able to voice our our opinions and our concerns with. Um, we feel like over the course of I think it's been about uh, uh, three or four months now we've been doing the drive. Um, we've created this sort of safe place, uh, this sort of family, because um, although it's myself and Che that are speaking into the mic, we have live conversation happening on Twitter at the same time. And we are engaging with the people who are listening in the moment live. And we invite everybody to be able to participate, you know, if they're listening live to be on Twitter and following the conversation, the coffee crew, as we call our family, um, to be able to continue that conversation. And so I think it's part of what makes the drive so powerful. And it's part of what made this broadcast this past Friday so powerful because all of these emotions that we were all feeling, and I know that um, I, I was telling Che and, and many people this, that during that that broadcast, my, like my hands were shaking. I was I was shaking with emotion through that entire show, that whole hour, because this is this is the kind of conversation that you have with your family and it sometimes makes you uncomfortable, but there wasn't a single moment during that hour when I felt like I couldn't express my thoughts, my views, and to be able to share those emotions with the people that were listening with us. And, um, you know, another part that makes it so powerful is the sharing of 
the music because everything that we played during that show was requested by the listeners. And, um, you know, being able to put that music out there to represent um, those emotions and those feelings from the people who were listening was, again, such a powerful thing to be able to do. Um, because as, you know, I, and I'm going to be paraphrasing here, I read a, I, I read a quote on Twitter just this morning um, that stated that when words fail us, music can often take its place. And, um, and we really felt that that was the case along with everything else. So it was just, it was just a perfect way to spend some time healing together. Um, and, and that healing is still happening as, as we do the work, but it was, uh, an important first step to just grieve and mourn together. And, uh, I think that a lot of those emotions definitely came through. I would jump in there, Pav. I think you talked about one of the, the luxuries of the platform or the privilege of the platform is that it's live. And so the immediacy of your words and people connecting, it truly matters that people go through that experience um, together. And so you're right. Everyone had picked their songs for very specific reasons. And people had side messages saying, this song reminds me of this. And they would tell us about their experience. Like the songs matter, the lyrics mattered. But what which also was really impactful is that all of us gathered at the same time to share the experience. And you know what I could think of, you know, we expanded it and we did much more in-depth analysis of our content on our podcast. And it, and it was a great conversation. But one thing that you lack in that podcast is the old school gathering around the radio to tune into the show. And whether you know it or not, there's, there's, there's safety and there's power in knowing you are sharing this moment with someone else. And when it, when it's that live voicehead radio program, you, you feel so much more vibrancy, so much more impactful because you are sharing that moment immediately with 200 or 300 or 350 other people. And you get such a great sense of, of, yeah, we're doing this together. Yes. The words, the songs, the immediate feedback are impacting. People are going to do something with this. We can come back and say, remember the drive and it pushes us forward. So, um, you know, I never necessarily want to compare the podcast to the drive. The drive is a different format, but that old school radio, that old school sense of we're sharing this moment together, it really impacts. And when the world is sort of, uh, having these chaotic moments, these disastrous moments, these protests, uh, these, these really sharp issues of race that are dividing they become a chance to also unite and connect and i really think the power of the drive was in that shared moment we all gathered together around the radio to refocus re-energize and get ourselves set up to do the work you know when this you talk about the music and and both of you used a word a few times as each of you were talking, you mentioned uniting, and that is the beauty of connecting through radio. With a podcast, we both have podcasts, all three of us, mm-hmm. <laughs> but with a podcast, you can just, it, it's not real time. Mm-hmm. And and that's the difference that Che is talking about with the drive. And they talked from their hearts, but but I want to talk about the music for a minute before we get to that. Um, I know I, I share with you guys a lot of personal intimate stories. And so some of those songs 
Um, I can remember when and why some of the songs were written. And I think if, if you're not a person of color, um, it may not resonate that same way. And, 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 you know, the, the, the pain and the persecution just because of the color of our skin. And when, when some of these artists, um, decided to write and produce and sing a lot of these songs, it was their outlet instead of violence or or rioting. This was their protest. Um, So I I have goosebumps right now as I even just, I mean, literally I have goosebumps um, as I think of, and, and that's where the tears were coming from, Chan Pab, is just the pain behind the words. I mean, if people just really listened to those words. You can hear the agony. You can hear the cry out in those words. So the fact that you have a platform that invites listeners to share what's on their hearts through requests, and then it flows out into the world because your reach is global, um, that, that's powerful. It, it's, I, I literally had to, like, I was so consumed with emotion that I, I just, I couldn't participate on social media. I went to a space. I went to a very personal, painful space. So, you know, I feel like it was needed. It was an outlet that I didn't know that I needed, but it was so helpful. And then to add to that, the the humility that both of you had realizing that you were approaching the most delicate, the most fragile, just such a fragile topic. You approached it with sensitivity, with total respect, with a humility and, and a grace and a delicateness that took my breath away. Um, so I, I, I um, appreciate that. And, um, you know, Chase said something that really resonated with me. And I know you guys know what I'm going to say, because I've said it a lot. I've, I've, I've quoted it a lot on social media. Um, Che acknowledged that, see, it, it's about self-awareness. And that's what we spend a lot of time doing in Education Never Dies is having these conversations and having self-awareness and reflection and sharing. And um, Che, you said, you know what I'm going to say. So do you want to say it or do you want me to say it? <laughs> As a white male, I have had the historically dominant voice, whether I'm talking or not, and I will continue to have it. And that's the the barriers and the boundaries we have to crush and destroy and eradicate. And so, yeah, I did know exactly what line. It was the historically dominant voice. And I also think is important is it whether I'm speaking or not. Um, even as I, as a white male, it's like, oh, I won't speak now, but that, that's not good enough either. Like to not sort of share your voice or to stand back and to think that your voice still doesn't dominate conversation. That's one of those self-awareness components you have to be aware of as a white male in the racial conversation, the systemic racial, uh, anti-racist conversation, you have to realize that white males have the historically 
dominant voice, whether you're talking or not. And it's, it's not solely in your voice. It's in your text. It's in your posters, in your room. It's in your curriculum. That white male voice dominates. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, um, you know, the fact that you realize that, Jay, uh, and that it, it really does make a difference. It, it's so woven into the fabric of um, humanity that we need that awareness. And not only the awareness, like you said, it's not about okay, just be quiet. It's still the very presence. It's the power of that presence. It's it's the history behind it. And, and how do we go about changing that? And I think the first step, and this is why that phrase, I think, moved me beyond, I, and there's no words. Um, it is the awareness, Che, and it's that you're brave enough to, to speak it. And by you speaking it, those who still, there's so many people, because you said it a minute ago, um, I'll have to play this back. It was it was perfect what you said, um, that some people are awakening um, and some people still haven't realized it yet. So for, for the people who kind of, you know, just don't get it, um, I, I've kind of seen some of those comments and I, I know it doesn't anger me because I know people just don't get it. Um, but by you being that white male um amplifying that and speaking that and explaining that and and it just I don't know it, it just feels so good to my soul that you know that message needs to spread more and um I think that's how we start building and bridging the gaps um I I would jump in, Tracy. You're just you're speaking perfectly. Uh, I sort of think of my path. How did I get there? I certainly have struggled. I had to have my eyes opened. I had to have people share stories and emotional anecdotes that I hadn't been aware of. I needed to, to listen to my peers in my building. I needed to listen to my students. And then on top of that, you needed people that were experts that could come in and, and show you the data and show you the pedagogies and show you the research. And so the idea of, of white privilege uh, and white sort of being the dominant voice is something I got from the, the pedagogy of courageous conversations and Mr. Singleton's work. And that coupled with teaching in a highly diverse community for a long, long time. So I'm teaching in my 20th year. Our school's about 700 kids and students of color would make up 690 of them for 20 years. And so I've made lots of mistakes in my early days. Those mistakes have made me very focused as I've gotten a little bit older and the staff around me that is a richly diverse staff to hear the very similar stories to yours, Tracy, just passionate and personal experiences awaken sort of my eyes to it at an early on stage in my career. And then our board and our district has been very good at the pedagogies and the research and bringing in the people that can really inform you. And so um, I definitely give, you know, the praise and the appreciation to the people around me that have sort of guided me, pushed me, showed me to, to get to this level of understanding of myself and in my area. 
my students, like I realize in my classroom that my voice dominates, but I've also, because of the work of Courageous Conversation, have always made it part of class discussion. My kids know what Courageous Conversation is. We know we're getting into. And I've always been very open talking about being male and being white because I will very openly in my class, middle schoolers, right? You're, the age and the context matters. Well, always very explicitly state i can't i can't understand what your life is like i i can try to emphasize i can try to support i can try to guide i can try to be there to show you avenues to the inequities in our system but i would never tell them i understand what it, what it's like to be someone of color in our community i don't go leave the school at lunch go to the local mall get looked at get persecuted for have run-ins with people i can't relate to that but we'll, we'll at least i'll try to engage all the conversation i can uh, in my class. So when I think of that's where I am, I wouldn't so blindly say, well, you should be here too. No, 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 no. It takes some work. It takes some experience. It takes being blessed with people around you that are willing to sort of nurture you, open your eyes to things. And then, you know, having the data and having the research and having the pedagogy, you need all these components to get yourself in a spot where you're comfortable and okay identifying, when I speak in being a white male, okay to identify and understand why you are dominant as a white male and how that impacts your kids. And so I think, think when I hear you telling the story, I often think about me in a staff meeting is that I dominate staff meetings, whether I'm talking or not. And I even start to think about uh, interactions in staff meetings where I try to stand down. I try to be, you know, just in the back corner, but then I always realize from lots of these conversations that people are still curious or angstful or thinking that my voice will dominate at some point. So it's a lot of awakening as a teacher and I am blessed to teach in a richly diverse community. And if I had to speak on, you know, my privilege or, you know, at my, my whiteness, I came from Ottawa, which is a particularly uh, white community, white town in Canada. And I got hired in Toronto. The first school I went to didn't even think about it hired within 15 minutes I know now why I was hired in 15 minutes because it was a community that wasn't sought after. It's one of those communities where teachers weren't trying to get into. And this is the systemic racism of it all that, okay. but as a naive, so naive that I didn't even think twice about it. I took my first job, my first contract and predominantly coming from a, a very white city it took lots of learning for me to step into a school that was richly, richly diverse and lots of struggles and lots of little mistakes uh, early on. And it may be some big mistakes, um, but certainly time surrounded by great staff surrounded in a great board uh have have put me in a spot where i'm very comfortable to identify and talk about white privilege and me being a white male educator in my community and in my space i think uh if i can cut in just for a second um something that's so important that che has mentioned and brought up is the fact that um oops sorry um is the fact that indeed experience matters. And, you know, this is Che's sort of self-awareness that he has, uh, he has come to over 20 years of experience within the community and being uh, enriched by it and being, um, you know, so immersed in it that it's almost like, I have to be vulnerable with the people that are around me. And I, and I am, and I am almost forced to learn, you know, in the beginning. And then, and then you start to learn because this is, this is part of your immersion. This is part of your community. This has now become your family and your home. And so I think that that self-awareness and knowing and knowing 
the fact that Che knows that he has the dominant voice, whether he's speaking or not, is something that doesn't come to people immediately. It doesn't, it's not sort of like, okay, well, I'm white. And so whether I'm speaking or not, there's always that little bit of, um, you know, defiance and sort of that pride that puts you over top of that and saying, you know, no, I'm just like everybody else. No, you're, you're inherently, you are not. And so recognizing that and appreciating that and knowing, you know, when, when it's time to allow others to amplify their voices and for you to sort of take the step to stand down, that, that takes a lot of experience. And when we talk about awakening and reawakening, um, it's important for that experience and sort of to allow your yourself to be immersed in those surroundings and allowing those experiences to allow you to get there. And I'm not saying that it should take a person, you know, their entire lifetime to be able to get there. I think that because we are so uh, engaged in conversation with people, I think that perhaps our our thinking evolves a little bit faster because we are so engaged in the discourse and in the communication with other people. And it allows you to come to those conclusions, I think, a little bit faster because, because we can discuss it. And so, you know, when people say things like, you know, talking doesn't, doesn't, isn't action or, you know, talk is, is not going to get us to where we need to go. I, I would argue that in fact it does. Um, I think that the conversations help to propel thinking and the conversations help to, uh, be able to have people like Che's voice, people like my voice, who a non, a non-black person of color, um, somebody like your voice, Tracy, to be able to speak together and to speak our truths together so that we can start to try and understand or empathize with each other's lives and our own experiences and seeing how they can help to, you know, come up with some strategies to a solution. So, um, yeah, I just I just felt like I needed to add that that the that Che's experience in the community definitely plays a big part and um although he may not always be actively trying to, you know, sit down and say, you know, tell me about your life, tell me about your background, it's it's part of the immersion, it's part of the process of growing and evolving as a person within a community. And I think we are live pieces of the puzzle, meaning um, the self-awareness piece. I, I've, I've had the privilege of talking to people of all different cultures have been calling, texting, messaging. Um, and, you know, I shared a video, you guys know about it. It's our everyday, just kind of telling some stories that my own family has dealt with. And as a family, we have so much joy. We're happy. Well, gosh, we're so, so happy. So nobody realizes, you know, the things I shared with the people who know us and live right in our community were just in pain for us um, because they had no idea. And that's that self-awareness piece is I've heard that one thing so much. I had no idea. So I think we, as people of color, have to continue to tell our stories. Um, people of other races have to listen 
And then we have to talk and, and we have to have that self-awareness. So when I say we're live puzzle pieces, like hopefully all of these pieces of the puzzle will come together and, and, and just bring that unity that we so desperately need. So I think within our own spaces, we need to keep, we need to continue to keep doing the work. And, and I feel like that's what we're doing. So that being said, Che and Pav, um, where do you go from here? Like what's, what's next for you? What's your, I mean, you have to keep doing the work and you're doing the work so well. What, what do you know what it looks like for you going forward? Well, uh, I'll jump in. Uh, and this is, you know, off the, the usual plan of uh, Pav and I, because Pav will usually always go first. Um, so she's <laughs> I have to say, like, yeah, I, I opened my mouth to speak and then Jay cut in. So it's okay. Go ahead, Jay. <laughs> you can just keep the cut eye going. Um, it's going. The, the luxury is, is that we are teachers and we're still teaching. So when something, when all the protests were just unraveling or not, unraveling is the wrong word in display undeniable the angst the anger the outrage we were able to bring it right to our classroom on monday morning tuesday morning wednesday morning um that experience was a little disheartening it's it's a reminder because i'll come back to this idea of this conversation that you were talking about before is that when the world is sort of running down you you think everyone's at a certain level and and then i can propel from here so when we jumped into class Monday morning and we had the clips and we, I had passionate quotes that were going to like, I please, I can't breathe. I had that quote to just fire up the conversation. And I had this idea teachers typically do where I'm going to get to in this lesson, what's going to end up happening. And then you, you jump into the lesson and you have a few students that are outraged that are angry and they're, and they're sharing personal stories. And then you have a, bunch of students that are sort of disinterested, want them to know more, they're going to sit and listen. And then you have a couple that have no idea what's going on. And you're just like, oh, 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 I, I, I got to readjust what I'm going to do. My class and myself aren't all on the same spot of where we want to propel forward. Um, and it reminds you that the work is going to be daily. It's going to be a grind. And you're not, if I put it in a gym guy reference, you're not hitting a home run. You're not going to be able to change the world the next day. You, too many people have to be involved. Too many people have to, to break down the systemic inequalities. And us as a teacher working and guiding and learning from our students, we've got to propel ourselves all forward. And that's going to take some time. And when you guys talked about the value of talk and conversation, the value in talk and conversation is to bring us all along. And in this work, it can't be slow. But it, but it also can't be rushed where you leave so many people out of the equation. It's the whole mastery uh, mastery learning framework. You cannot move forward if your base is not secure. And so if our base and our students, even in a richly diverse community, and Tracy, this comes back to this sort of double crisis. I think COVID-19 has also sheltered people. People have, have got used to turning the news off. Certainly here in Toronto, people aren't moving around freely yet. I think a lot of people and families and kids, they've shut the, the news off. They're not as in tune with what's going on. And as a teacher remotely, you're like, oh, this, this is going to be a bit of a challenge. I've got to guide some more instruction. i got to get some more stuff out there. So from Monday with this idea that we were going to change the world, we, everyone's going to be fired up. You realize, oh, I got to step back. I slow down. Let's change up the activities for Tuesday. Let's change up the activities for Wednesdays. Still related 
to this anti-racist pedagogy, still related to getting out personal stories, drawing personal connections, still related to getting everyone informed with what's going on. But it was clear from the teacher perspective that the immediacy of trying to push forward, there's that reminder, I've got to get all my students on board. And there's always tons of factors. Um, because immediately I walked away and my first thought was, how can these kids don't know what's going on? And then my second thought, which was the better thought, was like, well, this is a reflection of my teaching. This is why my kids aren't thinking about this because I haven't taught well enough. And that's good at that self-assessment part. Ultimately, both answers are probably wrong, but both answers are probably also part of it. I know I'm very open talking about courageous conversation, very open talking about race and gender identity and homosexuality in our classrooms. This is something I've always sort of taken some pride in being really good at bringing up to, to the forefront. But then in the, when it mattered, that didn't resonate per se. Kids weren't coming with tons of answers and, and tons of ideas and tons of impact and tons of energy. And so you did some self-reflection, said, okay, let's let's readjust and and let's go at this again. So what do you do immediately? Immediately? Well, lucky for Pav and I, we're teachers. We're in the room. And I think uh, a blog post from Hedrick, who we read at the end of her blog post, she said, what do you do is you deal with the students right in front of you and you make an impact and, and you do the work right there. And if you assume the person beside you is doing the same work and the person beside them is doing the same work and the person beside them is doing the same work, that's great work. Unlike other conversations I've had where I've simply been told based on liberation pedagogy, the work I'm doing is not good enough and I shouldn't do it. Um, but I'll, I'll, I will skip that argument because when I'm in front of my 30 students, I'm not willing to not do any work because in the grander scheme of socialism, it's not a good thing. I'm actually going to stick to doing what's best for my students right in front of me because I know the person beside me is doing the best for them right in front of them, or at least I hope they are. But I anticipate as we all move forward, we will be. So what am I doing? I'm teaching. I'm teaching. And uh, yeah, that is powerful, Che, especially in, in regards to, you know, that mention of the liberation pedagogy. It's, it's very reflective of what society is like when we are in front of our classrooms. Um, you know, the best that we can do um, is to make sure that we are bringing attention to the situation and bringing awareness to the situation and immersing our students in these experiences as much as we possibly can. And if we get 10 out of the 30 that walk away with something powerful or something that resonates or a call to action or you know some sort of switch that turns on in their minds to say, this is not right, that the things that are going on in our world are not right. They are going to be those agents of change as they move forward in their lives. And we see this reflective in our society because there are people who will step up and then there were people who are going to slink into the back because they, they either feel like their voice doesn't matter or it's not going to be heard or they're just not there yet. They don't understand yet. They don't get it yet. There are, there are so many um, different moving parts to how this all works together. But I think what's important for us as educators to realize is that in our class of 30 students, we may have those five or six or 10 or 15, maybe everybody who is going to say, yeah, I, I can't believe that I've been living my life with these, uh, with the systemic racism all my life. And I, and my eyes haven't been open to it yet. And I'm grateful that I, you know, that light bulb has turned on and, and I can start to think in different ways now. And so this is something that I think challenges so many different societies. And, and we talked about this in, uh, on the drive. And, and I, th I believe in the episode as well, is that this is not just a group of white people problem. This is, you know, 
this this uh, spreads to every different culture that's out there because that systemic racism doesn't just exist in that dominant society. That dominant society has managed to, over the course of generations, been able to push that racism through all the systems, cultural systems, uh, socioeconomic systems, uh, everything, educational systems, everywhere. And so in order for us to be able to rewind in and start to dismantle those things, we have to be able to engage with our students because it's, it's not going to be solved in the immediacy. This is going to be something that we have to work on over a long course of time to be able to dispel the myths and to be able to, um, you know, pick apart so many of these fallacies that we have uh, all grown up to live with and these biases that we all have. This takes time. It takes a lot of time. And that's why, you know, just like with our groups of people that we have come together with, we start with those safe spaces right away on day one. You have 180 days with your students. And on day one is when this conversation has to begin by creating that, that space where those people that are going to slink in the back and say, you know what, this, this is the same conversation every year. My voice isn't going to matter. The things that I have to say aren't going to matter. So I'm not going to speak up we start to dismantle those. We start to take those apart and we start to trust each other and be able to speak about these things together and have those courageous conversations. And it doesn't have to be in middle school. It can start at the very beginning of schooling because those conversations already started before those students came to school. So we have to be able to take those biases and start to pick at them on day one. Pav, you mentioned, you know, these conversations are already happening before they come to school. And I was making a note to kind of segue into that as we prepare to close out. Um, You know, it it takes everybody if we're talking educationally. And that means administrators need to be having conversations with parents. Administrators need to be checking on families. Administrators need to be bringing parents in, you know, sit down at the table, have those roundtable conversations, even if it, for parents who are comfortable, teachers who are comfortable, let them lead a PD. But the but the big part of that, Chan Pav, like I wanted to do that so many times through the years in schools that I've taught at. And I'm going to tell you what I honestly feel. I feel like there's going to be the group of people that are like, oh, we have to sit and listen to this. Um you know, and I feel like that's the large majority and it's sad to feel that way, but, but that's that, that dominant narrative that we talked about, um, that it's not a problem. Um, and the other piece of that is, you know, we say we have to have the conversations with our students and we do, but the, the missing piece is, and this is something I've been saying when I talk about it's our everyday, our families who are non-color, are they sitting down watching the horror of the news. And we do have the layer of the double crisis. But but when the George Floyds happen, when the Botham Johns happen, when the Tatiana Jefferson, are are, are we watching these stories and, and realizing that, you know, if, if little, if my child sitting next to me, if I'm white, um, are we having that child have some awareness that you have friends who are Black, who are sitting down just like we are, and they're watching the same news through a completely different set of lenses. 
their parents are talking to them about how to handle themselves when they get stopped by the police, how to handle themselves when they're in the store. But, 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 you know, a lot of families don't know that's happening. And so I feel like if, if anything has come out of where we are now is that more black people are sharing their stories and, and, and like people that you work with, people that you go to church with, people that you do life with, we've never told you this part of our lives. And so, so many people are now learning. So I feel like change is coming. Change has to come. So I know we're all doing the right work. We just have to keep doing it. And the one thing I ask everybody is just don't forget in a month, in December, in 2021, don't forget. Um, Keep remembering that white dominant male voice. Keep remembering the stories. Keep having the conversations like you're having Che and Pav. And that's how we'll continue to impact change and be part of the change. You know, Tracy, you said the word that resonated there was is is in a month or three months. And I think as everything was unfolding, as a 20-year experience teacher, I've often relied on experience. And experience means listening to your staff, listening to your students, doing the reading. But, and here's my but, but I felt like maybe I had gotten so lax, not disgustingly lax, but just a little lax in how I was teaching. Cause when my kids didn't have that immediate impactful responses, I, I did. And as a good teacher, rightfully or wrongfully, you always should bring it back to yourself. What can I do a little differently? And I felt that maybe, maybe I'd become a little laxed in because I was so comfortable talking with courageous conversations. So comfortable with these ideas that maybe I wasn't as intentional uh, with my work. And so when you said in a month, in three months, you know, let's make sure we're still doing the work. One of the things from my learning and propelling myself forward is I don't know if I was lax or not, but I'm going to assume that I had become a little lax in my anti-racist pedagogy, in my anti-racist workings. And um, not, like I said, I can't cite a certain piece of evidence. In fact, I could even cite some evidence of of the opposite. Like in our school, we've had um, students that have really been working with uh identifying how they identify as male or female. And so I know our school and our teachers and our students and myself have been doing that really important work. Um, but when this sort of happened and, and the murder happened and and um, all these protests were going on, I started to think about this is reawaken. That's why I use the word reawaken because I felt I have the tools there. I had the self-awareness, but maybe I'd become a little bit laxed with it because I felt I had that self-awareness. And for me, when you said in three months and in six months, it reminded me what is my takeaway for me as a teacher right now is to make sure that I don't ever get lax with the work. Um, and so, again, I don't have any empirical data to disprove or prove it, but to propel myself forward, I'm going to make up the narrative or cement the narrative that I maybe was too lax in my anti-racist work and I want to push it a little bit forward. I want to make it a little bit more intentional so that in three months or six months or eight months or a year, I can definitely say this is, I'm, I'm on top of this. Yeah. Something powerful that I came across on social media, actually, I think it might've been Instagram was the statement that the work doesn't end when the protests end because the fire of the protests are going to start to dwindle down because it's, it's not a sustainable practice, but the work shouldn't end at the same time. The work has to continue at the same time. This is just, this is the igniter. This is, you know, what we need to to remind us and to reawaken us that this work has to be done consistently. 
consistently. That that's it. It it just it cannot stop. Um, Champav, thank you for your time. Um, we were only supposed to go thirty minutes, but mm-hmm. you know this conversation clearly warranted more time. And I want to thank you for honoring that and and giving it its due space. Um, and I think that's what we all need to do is give it more time and and honor it and talk about it. So Champav, thank you for your time. And before we close out, um, even though this was a heavy conversation, it, it's necessary. And clearly listeners, you see that Che and Pav um, are very mission-minded and, and really trying to help be the voice of change. So Che and Pav, how can listeners connect with you? So on Twitter, the best way to, it, that's probably the best way to connect with us. Uh, our The Staff Room Podcast can be reached at Staff Podcast. Uh, the Drive on Voice Ed Radio can be reached at The Drive Voice Ed. And you can find myself and Che at Pav Wander, and Che is at Mr. C. Cheney. And so we can be reached at any of those. And then, of course, there's always uh, at Edu Never Dies to reach the entire Education Never Dies team. Um, and, and so there are lots of different ways to reach us. Just just do a quick search of the Staff Room podcast and you'll find everybody there. When did our resume get so long? I don't know. It started with one Twitter handle and now we're at five. <laughs> but now, of course, let's not let's add on because you can find Tracy and ourselves there as well. You can always find us with School Rubric and you can always find us with uh, Voice Head Radio. Two great places, two great platforms for educators to connect and, and share resources and share podcasts and share conversations. So I'll make sure to add in School Rubric and Voice Head Radio. That's right. They both get huge shout outs from the three of us. Um, follow School Rubric, follow Voice Ed Canada. Uh, School Rubric is doing an amazing job um, amplifying the voices of educators and how we navigate through COVID-19, sharing best practices. Um, and, and several contributing authors are sharing stories about the current racial situation. And Che and Pav, um, I, I've presented in a couple of their webinars and you have one coming up, right? That's right. We are going to be presenting on um, how podcasting can help us to be able to amplify our voice. And that presentation is going to be on June 20th. And the um, the Google form for registering is available now. So if you visit the School of Rubric Twitter page, it should be their pinned tweet at the moment. Be sure and follow that. It's going to be a very enlightening and inspiring conversation with two really awesome people, Che and Pav and the friends at School Rubric. So Che and Pav, thank you for your time with us today. And this is all the time we have. So thank you for joining us at Intelligogy, the podcast where together we are disrupting educational normalcy. Until next time. Thanks, Che and Pav. Thanks, Thanks, Tracy. It was a pleasure.